to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Get ready for another informative session at High Truths. You will see that we're addressing drugs and addiction from all angles. We hear from patients and doctors. Our experts are in medicine, law enforcement, prevention, and administration. And today, we're going to talk about addiction medicine workforce for the medical community. But first, an introductory story. I was studying for my addiction medicine board exam, and one of the key study materials is a medical textbook called The ASAM Essentials of Addiction Medicine. The editor for this text is Dr. Timothy Brennan. I was invited to a conference at the American Association of Medical Colleges, AAMC, and read the invitation guest list to find that Dr. Brennan was going to be there. And with no shame, I brought my textbook to the meeting, engaged Dr. Brennan in conversation, and got my textbook autographed. This was my good luck charm for passing the board exam, and it worked. Thanks to Dr. Brennan's good luck signature, I became double boarded in emergency medicine and addiction medicine. Today's episode is inspired by the question from our listener. Our listener today heard me for an entire shift in the emergency department and then more time on his phone at home listening to the podcast. So let's hear from Dr. Spencer Darlin. Hi, Dr. Lev. This is Spencer Darlin, second year ER resident at Kaiser San Diego. We recently worked a couple real hectic shifts together at the peak of the pandemic when ICUs were full, ambulances were lining up. After I worked a couple shifts with you, I heard about your podcast. You bring up a good point, that many of the patients we admit to the hospital would benefit from addiction medicine treatment, not just from consultations to cardiology or infectious disease. Why don't we have that available to us now? Great question by Dr. Spencer Darling. And of course, there was only one person I would invite to answer that question, Dr. Timothy Brennan. Dr. Brennan is director of the Addiction Institute at Mount Sinai West and Mount Sinai St. Luke Hospital in New York. He's also the director of the Fellowship of the Addiction Medicine Program at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He's co-editor of Essentials of Addiction Medicine Textbook and a frequent contributor in the media regarding addiction issues. For the medical students out there, he received his bachelor's in foreign service in Georgetown, his MD, MPH from Tulane, internship at Georgetown Pediatrics in New York Presbyterian, and addiction medicine fellowship at the Addiction Institute. So, Dr. Tim Brennan, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Um, thank you. It's it's really wonderful. Um, again, that that signature in the textbook really was my good luck charm. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. Um, and you have such an interesting background um, where now you are, you know, one of the world's experts in addiction medicine, but you came from foreign service and tropical medicine and pediatrics. How did that happen? Well, uh, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, I was equally thrilled, of course, to to meet you, um, and it's been great to collaborate 
these last few years. Uh, I think like a, a small percentage of physicians, I took a, a rather scenic route to medical school. I, I don't come from a family of physicians. And so I didn't enter uh, college with the intention of, of going to medical school. Um, I, I got a Jesuit education at Georgetown. I was really proud of that and, and really loved the, the foreign service experience um, at Georgetown. After graduating, I think like a lot of young adults, I, I sort of found myself wondering uh, what comes next and uh, decided to uh, start taking some pre-medical classes. Uh, this was kind of before or at the start of the so-called post-baccalaureate pre-medical uh, programs. Uh, I didn't do a formal one. I, I did a, a rather piecemeal uh, program both at Georgetown and at Maryland and uh, thankfully found myself uh, accepted to Tulane a few years later uh, for the MD-MPH program. And it was just a, an awesome experience. New Orleans, of course, is an incredible place to live, really unique opportunity to learn medicine in, in, in a city like New Orleans. So felt really fortunate and lucky to, to find myself down there and the rest is history. That's great. Do you have, how did you get to addiction medicine? Do you have a personal connection with that or is it because of what you've seen in your medical path? It's a good question. Um, you know, like many people, there are some people in my family who have struggled with the horrible disease of addiction. And so I think even in medical school, um, I kind of found myself gravitating towards uh, patients who were struggling with addiction issues. Um, and for that matter, social and environmental issues. Like a lot of young medical students, I was influenced by various physician leaders. Uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, of course, was was a big um, uh, a big influence for me, and so I I felt myself kind of drawn to this desire to work with underserved and, and stigmatized populations. I actually started out my uh, my post grad my graduate medical uh, career in internal medicine and then transitioned into pediatrics. Uh, as I was completing my residency in pediatrics at Cornell, I found myself more and more interested in the behavioral components of health. And so I ended up applying for fellowship in addiction medicine. I feel like addiction medicine is kind of the most psychiatric of the medical specialties and the most medical of the psychiatric specialties. And for me, that felt like really kind of fertile ground. Uh, so I applied for fellowship. I came over across Central Park to what at the time was known as the Addiction Institute of New York. And I remember distinctly meeting with Dr. Petros Lavunas, uh, who was running the fellowship program at the time. Now, I didn't realize it, but he's a real giant in our field. And I knew from entering his office that uh, addiction medicine was right for me. And it really has been just a, a really wonderful journey. It's, it's a, a very compelling uh, pursuit for me. And it's an honor to take care of patients that struggle with addiction. Wow. But, you know, your broad background really is an, an asset to your patients and the and the profession. Um, addiction medicine is a fairly young specialty. Uh, I, I I like comparing it to emergency medicine. When, when I started um, my career, emergency medicine was just at its infancy. Now it's really established and there was growing pains uh, to that development. Can, can you give us a little history on, on, on where did the specialty come from? Sure. And we're grateful, of course, for the leadership and example set by emergency medicine. Um, to be clear, addiction medicine is what we call a multi-specialty subspecialty. 
So for the non-medical listeners out there, what that means is that physicians really of any background can come into addiction medicine. You can be a pediatrician, you can be an internal medicine doctor, an emergency medicine doctor, a psychiatrist, a radiologist, a surgeon, you name it. And you can then go and get trained in addiction medicine. The truth is, is that addiction medicine has been practiced for decades. In fact, if you go back to the 1950s, there were societies in New York and California uh, of physicians who got together and called themselves addiction medicine physicians. Um, But to be honest, most of that care took place in basements, in church rectories, and in other kind of non-medical settings. We know from the history of addiction treatment in this country that a lot of the treatment was provided uh, for free by other people who themselves had struggled with addiction. Of course, talking about uh, self-help organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous. It really wasn't until the 80s and 90s where you saw the real rise of addiction membership organizations for physicians, uh, most notably the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And then of course, as physicians got more and more comfortable talking about addiction as a medical disease, we saw addiction started to be treated in uh, what I would term mainstream medical environments like doctor's offices and hospitals. Uh, We still were a field that didn't exist in the eyes of the insurance companies. There was no way in the 80s, 90s, and in early 2000s to even describe yourself as an addiction medicine physician because we were not part of an organization known as the American Board of Medical Specialties. So it wasn't um, until a group of pioneering physicians decided to form their own board called the American Board of Addiction Medicine that physicians in addiction medicine started certifying themselves. And then fortunately in 2016, addiction medicine finally earned membership in the American Board of Medical Specialties. And now of course, today, here we are on January 15th, 2021, we have 81 different accredited addiction medicine fellowships spread out around the United States and over 2,600 physicians that are board certified in addiction medicine. So it really has been this exponential growth, which is which is wonderful, of course, uh, for patients and families. Thank you, Tim, for sharing that history of addiction medicine. I know it's not easy. And are there some special people who require uh, acknowledgement for making it happen? Uh, thank you for the for the question. Um, Myself, uh, patients, families, our entire field uh, owes its uh, creation to somebody who is uh, several thousand miles uh, to our west right now uh, on the island of Hawaii. I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Kevin Kunz. Uh, Dr. Kunz is a preventive medicine physician uh, who really spearheaded uh, the creation of the American Board of Addiction Medicine, served as the executive vice president, not just of ABAM, but of the Addiction Medicine Foundation and the uh, first EVP of the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine. Uh, I am personally uh, grateful for Dr. Kun's um, leadership uh, in our great field. And uh, I think patients and families have him to thank for the creation of evidence-based standards. 
Really, it's amazing. He is, and I'm so privileged to have um, met him and befriended him, but Kevin is one of the fathers of addiction medicine and, and an example of many people out there of one person making a difference because he would not let the subject go really for his entire career. You know, one of the big goals for um, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy was expanding the addiction medicine um, workforce. And I remember when we started this, we were at 50 programs. Um, so, you know, this going up to 82, 83 is amazing. Um, we had, we worked together and that's, uh, that's how we got to know each other on a White House event promoting that. And uh, what's your perspective of that event? And was it successful, you know, to your organization? Absolutely, and and I'm um, I'm glad you brought that up. We were thrilled to collaborate with with ONDCP. Uh, we've been fortunate to work uh, with folks and leaders like you at, at and others at ONDCP through through multiple uh, administrations. Uh, and in in that sense, I think anytime we can have uh, federal collaborators, and anytime we can have legislators or the executive branch sort of partner with us to help advance our field, it's a good thing. Um, of course, it's there's uh, no greater thrill than, than walking onto the White House grounds, of course. And so I think that event was a, a dramatic success because the um, emerging programs that we invited to the White House event all went on to, of course, develop their own addiction medicine fellowships. So anything we can do to help uh, publicize our field is great. Of course, the opioid crisis has led to a lot of attention on our field. And so in that sense, the the, the spotlight is rather bright. But thanks to leaders like you and, and others at, uh, at ONDCP, uh, NIDA, NIAAA, uh, and SAMHSA, we've really been able to collaborate and, and, and help proliferate the workforce. Right. I kind of, that was my first White House event, and I really learned um, the power of that. It's not that we did any work. You did all the work in making it happen, but we elevated the issue and brought attention to it and made people excited about it. And 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 you made it happen. So that that was great. Um. So now that we understand uh, what addiction medicine is, we can tackle Dr. Darlin's question of we know why don't we have addiction medicine at our hospital or at every hospital in the United States. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a great question, uh, Roni, and I, and I really appreciate the uh, physician who raised it. I really hope that my answer uh, today is totally different than my answer ten years from now. Uh, and and the truth is, is that if you go into an emergency department this afternoon with chest pain, it doesn't matter if you go into an emergency department here in New York City, where I am, in California, where you are or anyway, anywhere between uh, where uh, we're both sitting, you're going to get largely the same type of care. Chest pain, of course, is treated the same anywhere we go. Uh, and that's because cardiology, of course, has been a medical specialty for many decades, and it has all sorts of evidence-based medications and evidence-based algorithms so that you're going to get high-quality care no matter where you go. The truth is, this afternoon, if you go into an emergency department with a substance use disorder, with an addiction problem, be it alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, or methamphetamine use disorder, 
any use disorder, you, to be honest, are going to get very different care depending on where you go for that care. The types of doctors who might see you at one institution will be totally different than the types of people who may see you at another institution. In fact, to, your, to the original question, at some institutions, you won't see a doctor at all for a use disorder. They may call a social worker or a psychologist. Uh, others may call somebody from chaplain services to meet with you. And so in that sense, we see this heterogeneity as we look around the country in the way that substance use disorders are treated. I very much feel as a physician that addiction is a medical disease, and I think addiction should be treated by medical professionals. So the goal of our organization, the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine, is to try as best we can to spread high standards and evidence-informed science around organized medicine so that 10 years from now, if somebody is brave enough to walk into an emergency department and say, I'm struggling with a substance use disorder, they're going to see a board certified addiction medicine physician who will be available on call. And that physician will come and see them and provide evidence-based care. That's We're great. not there yet. And we've got a long way to go. Right. But you big, big step. And I think these fellowships, um, it trickles down to the community and elevates the entire community. So, I mean, there is um, room for, um, you know, the, the current treatment programs that are out there that are not physician-led, but by elevating the field, you know, from the medical perspective, that standard will, 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 will trickle down to the entire field. I, I think you're and, totally right. And, and that's a really good point. We, physicians were very late to treating addiction and it has been treated by a whole host of others before uh, we got here. And we are uh, just one part of the, the, the kind of treatment arsenal. And so collaborating with our, um, with our colleagues who are both uh, trained and, uh, formally and perhaps trained with lived experience, folks in recovery themselves, it, mm -hmm. is really, really important. And so I, I feel that the fellowship programs, as you said, kind of offer this nidus of evidence-based uh, medicine that we can help collaborate and spread throughout the, not just the healthcare system, but the community at large. Right. And I think the example I was telling Dr. Dr. Darlin, when we were working is that, you know, somebody comes into the hospital with endocarditis, um, which is an infection to the heart caused by drugs, um, they'll get IV antibiotics and maybe sit in the hospital for six weeks and they'll see an infectious disease doctor and they'll see a cardiologist and they'll see an ICU doctor and a hospitalist. Um, and nobody during that whole six weeks will address the underlying cause of why they got there in the first place. And uh, now we're seeing that slowly change. And, and I, I would urge any community out there, if you don't have this service in your community, ask why. And, and Dr. Brennan, what would it take to, to bring that to, to communities around the entire United States? Sure. Uh, it, it's a great point. Um, and, and to be honest, it, it, it really doesn't, uh, it doesn't take much. We've now got, of course, 2,600 board certified physicians uh, in addiction medicine out there. I'm talking about ABMS level, the gold standard of board certification for physicians. Um, I think it's very, very vital 
for any community health system, any academic health center to have a board certified addiction medicine physician available on call. I think we now have the workforce force to achieve that in all um, academic medical centers and most uh, community medical centers. There are now a lot of us out there and I'm hoping that we're ready to take those jobs and, and kind of be those change agents in the community. To your point in that vignette about endocarditis, it's so very true. Oftentimes in medicine, we get very good at treating the last few days or even the last few hours of somebody's disease process. We're really good now at treating heart attacks and strokes. Uh, we're really bad at preventing heart attacks and strokes. And of course, it's a lot cheaper to prevent them than it is to treat it. So if you conceive of that patient with endocarditis, a disease of the heart, you and I both know, of course, that what leads to that endocarditis is injection drug use. What leads to injection drug use, of course, are a whole host of other issues that the patient may have been experiencing, sometimes one, two, even decades uh, later, earlier rather. And so okay. as we kind of move earlier in the lifespan, I really think it's important for physicians and others to address substance use disorders so as to prevent some of those really costly uh, medical sequelae later in life. Yeah. And and if you look at the patient volume in the hospital, um, I compare it also to palliative care service. So we have palliative care services. They come and do a consultation. If we really look at the volume of people coming into the hospital, uh, now, of course, with COVID, but that didn't stop all cellulitis is an abscess is an infectious disease that are related to addiction, your service would be very busy. And um, to that point, are you guys very busy? Are you, are you getting all the consultations as an addiction medicine service at your hospital? We are. Um, I started an addiction medicine consult service in uh, August of uh, 2019. And uh, we have been tremendously busy since then. We always had an addiction institute. Uh, we've been here for, for several decades, but we weren't providing consultation throughout the rest of the health system. And so we started that and we started being available on the wards, just like any other specialty. And what we found was this incredibly diverse range of addiction pathology that was coming in and out of the health system. And these were patients who never uh, were interacting with us, right? These were patients that were really suffering from addiction, but we didn't really know about them until we started this consult service. So I think that's been really important because we've been able to kind of um, refer them back to care um, when they've been interested. Patients, of course, interact with the health system in rather inefficient ways, right? Sometimes somebody, as you know, as an emergency medicine doctor, sometimes somebody might come in and out of the emergency department five or six different times having fallen and banged their head. And it's not until the sixth or seventh time that you realize that the reason they're falling and banging their head uh, is that they have an alcohol problem. Now, an astute clinician probably knew about it the first or second time. Or a benzodiazepine that, problem or an opioid or the combination. That's right. Of the that's right. Um, and we know so many substance use disorder uh, problems uh, end up uh, bringing people into the emergency department. But if that ED physician doesn't have anywhere to send that patient, if they don't have a colleague they can call like you or like me, um, it's hard to expect them to 
be able to intervene on the root cause of the problem. And so yeah. I'm really hopeful that now that our field's growing, we'll be able to offer that services. Certainly uh, here at Sinai, we, we've seen a, a real dramatic increase in the way we're utilized throughout the health system. Now, yeah. COVID, of course, is so isolating. And I'm very much worried that a lot of patients are out there that that are not coming into the health system. They're not coming out of their apartments and they're really, really struggling. So once things settle down, hopefully uh, a lot of those folks will be willing to seek care. I I just have to say that it, um, a, a good emergency physician shouldn't take five or six times to uh, diagnose the cause of the fall. I, I think, um, you know, we should always be looking for um, reasons for people falling, whether it's syncope or drug interactions or else. And hopefully it would be the first time that people figure out that it's, it's drug interactions or excess drugs that are causing the fall. Um, but you're right. Okay. We have this information to do with it. You know, and hopefully people- as that's right. And, and hopefully as we data share between health systems, uh, because patients oftentimes don't come in and out of the same emergency department, particularly here in a place like New York City, um, as we data share, uh, hopefully we can uh, sort of uh, see what's going on in a, in a patient's life with their consent, of course, and, and help offer them some referral earlier on in their disease course. Right. And so what has you're right about COVID that it's uh, it really has people stuck at home. I um I do reviews for medic Medicare um, from nursing home, and I'm seeing 80 year olds with alcohol withdrawal syndrome from being, you know, at home drinking and 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 developing and and showing these symptoms. How has um, how's that affected your your service? Do you have more patients? Same amount? Less? Yeah. So here at the Addiction Institute at, at Mount Sinai, we actually have treated more patients during COVID uh, than we were treating before COVID. Um, and I think that's largely due to uh, a lot of the innovations and, and relaxation of the telemedicine uh, regulations that um, have gone on around the country. And certainly grateful to Governor Cuomo's leadership on this, as far as allowing physicians to interact with patients, allowing clinicians to interact with patients over an internet connection in a much easier way than we were able to do before COVID. Our patients love it. They love to be safe and sound in their apartment and still engaged in treatment. And so we've kind of created this whole paradigm as a, as a field uh, as to what it means to engage in care. Um, so that's good as far as volume. Uh, however, uh, I'm aware as you are and probably as your listeners are, at the dramatic increase in alcohol sales uh, this year during COVID uh, compared to before COVID. It's and, funny, and you adjusts, walk into a grocery yeah. store and that's the first thing because I didn't go for, to the store for a while. But when I did, I noticed that all the alcohol was placed at the front of the store and in more yeah. volume. <laughs> they're, they're, making a, they're making a ton. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it, all of our lives, of course, have been disruptive disrupted, but we see this kind of blurring of the lines between somebody's work life and their home life. Um, Somebody working from home, of course, who otherwise probably had a much more regimented day, uh, as well as not having easy access to alcohol in the workplace, now suddenly finds themselves maybe one or two feet away from the liquor cabinet. And so um, 
not only do we have this ongoing anxiety that, that we all have about the pandemic in general, but we've got all these kind of uh, distorted daily routines. And so that really worries me as a uh, addiction medicine doctor, that there's going to be this whole cohort of new patients that never were going to develop a substance use disorder, but COVID has really kind of induced it for them. Yeah. And, and with that, so we've talked about you know, seeing a lot of alcohol use disorder. Have you in, seen increased um, in stimulant use disorder, benzodiazepine addiction? Um, are you treating all those things? Can you tell us kind of what your, what kind of patients are coming and being treated uh, at your consult service? Of course. So we practice here in, in Manhattan and have the great privilege, of course, of taking care of uh, human beings from all walks of life. Uh, because of where we're located, we see really anything and everything as far as substance use disorders. Uh, in the last few years, uh, like a lot of institutions, of course, we've seen a dramatic rise in the amount of opioid overdoses. Um, but we've also seen a concurrent increase in stimulant use disorders. I'm talking, of course, about methamphetamine. Um, and then, of course, this, I, I would say, um, unfortunately, less talked about scourge of benzodiazepine uh, use disorders, a sedative uh, use disorder, if you will. And what we're seeing among a lot of our patients who struggle with opioids is that they also struggle with sedatives. And we know, of course, that using sedatives and opioids at the same time can be uniquely dangerous. So it's all increasing. Yeah, just for our listeners, that's like Valium, Xanax, Librium, those are the benzodiazepines. That's right. That's right. Um, and I think, sadly, um, they tend to be uh, talked about a little bit less. And so oftentimes patients don't realize uh, just how dangerous they are uh, until they're, um, they're here in the hospital. Right. And I think one of the things I was trying to do is uh, the Department of HSS uh, um, established a opioid tapering tool. And, and I don't know if you use their resources as well. They have great resources on benzodiazepine um, readiness for change and tapering. And Yeah, there's, there's a ton of great resources out there. I think the, the goal, of course, is to get physicians, get clinicians comfortable with tapering these medications, because it is possible to come down off of uh, not just prescribed opioids, uh, but prescribed sedatives, as long as you do it uh, in, in a medically supervised manner. One of the projects I'm heading in, in San Diego, and hopefully it gets to be a standard nationwide, is to make fentanyl testing universal and automatic. It is our biggest crisis by far in the United States as far as deaths, 45% increase in deaths over the past year from fentanyl. But yet, if you get a drug screen as part of your medical assessment, it won't show up because it's a synthetic opioid. So we've had people who, who died uh, and even survived and their drug screen is negative and people don't really realize or put together that this was from fentanyl. Um, and I think that if we, if every physician out there who's getting a drug screen right now in order to check for THC or cocaine or methamphetamine, if that automatic and universally includes fentanyl, we could really make a difference by alerting the patient, the doctor, friends, 
giving naloxone and connecting to treatment. And I'm wondering if you are fentanyl issue really started in the East Coast and now really hitting the West Coast hard. Do you already do that? Um, in some place in in New York, and, and I'm wondering if this is this is something that I you know, hope communities around the country could take on. It's a great point, Roni. I'm I'm glad you raised it. Uh, fentanyl is a is a incredible scourge uh, that's killing uh, Americans each and every day. Uh, fentanyl, of course, is a opioid that's hundreds and sometimes thousands of times more powerful. Uh, than other opioids. Uh, these are poisonings that are happening at scale around the country. Uh, fentanyl is being used uh, to make heroin last longer. It, it, it helps the cartels uh, sell more heroin if they cut their heroin with fentanyl. Uh, here in New York, uh, as I understand it, a majority, more than 50% of all of the heroin on the streets actually contains not just heroin, but fentanyl. That is to say, the poor patient who's going to buy what they think is heroin is actually buying, is more likely than not, to buy not just heroin, but heroin and fentanyl. And so that's what's driving a lot of the overdoses. Uh, to your point, of course, uh, fentanyl doesn't show up in a lot of our routine urine toxicology tests. Uh, thankfully, uh, the, the city health department uh, back in 2019 launched a fentanyl awareness campaign. And so there's a lot more fentanyl programming on the subways and the buses and the communities to try to make people aware of just how dangerous this is. And some of the harm reduction um, communities have started distributing fentanyl test kits so that users at home can actually test their heroin to see if it's contaminated with fentanyl. Um, now, uh, going after the fentanyl scourge in, involves a, a lot of different stakeholders, of course. And to your point, I think it would be wonderful if urine toxicologies in health systems or in um, uh, fire departments and in other kind of first responder settings were able to test for fentanyl and have it come up as routinely as THC, cocaine, or methamphetamine, I think would be really worthwhile. So grateful for your for your ideas and, and leadership on this. I think it's really important. Yeah. And the silver lining in the opioid epidemic is that the medical community became engaged in the issue of addiction. It used to be very, you know, separated. And so because of that, we're thinking of, you know, solutions um, such as this one. You know, one thing we need to talk about, or I'd like to ask you about, uh, Tim, is marijuana. Um, we are, there's a huge amount of misinformation out there. It's good for opiate use disorder. It's good for pain. It's good for cancer. And it's being promoted for everything, both THC and CBD. And, um, we don't need to talk about whether it should be legal or not because it, it doesn't matter. It's out there and people are using and, and I think our job is to in, inform and educate, but how are you seeing this um, affecting your practice in addiction medicine? It's a great point, Ronit. Um, to be clear, very few people start off using uh, drugs like heroin and methamphetamine without first starting with the drug of cannabis. That's not to say that using cannabis therefore um, creates a um, use disorder in opioids or 
methamphetamine. But when we look at the numbers, most people start with cannabis. This question of not only what to do with cannabis use disorder, but what to do with cannabis itself as a potential therapeutic for other use disorders is a really complicated one. Uh, the thing that actually makes it uniquely complicated is that it's really hard to study cannabis because of the way it's scheduled by DEA. What I mean by that is if you wanna study the components of cannabis, it's really, really burdensome because of the regulatory issues of the way that it's registered with DEA. In medicine, as you know, we study compounds all the time. We do it in a rigorous manner according to the scientific method. And when we think we know exactly what compound is therapeutic for a patient, we synthesize it, we send them to the pharmacy and they're able to pick it up at a certain strength uh, and take it for a certain duration. We have no idea what that means when somebody asks us about cannabis. So this concept of medical cannabis is a really, really challenging thing for me to understand because I simply don't know what actually is in the cannabis that they're getting at a store, not even a pharmacy. And so that's in that the point. Sense, and, and I have people say, if you're going to say medical marijuana or cannabis, put it in quotations because it's not following any of the medical standards that we do for prescribing amoxicillin, buprenorphine, even aspirin. That's right. So let's study it. Um, let's hope it gets changed as a, as a schedule one drug and, and figure out if there's anything therapeutic in it. Uh, and if there is, uh, let's distill it down. Let's send somebody to the pharmacy just like they would for their antibiotics so that they know um, exactly what it is they're getting. But can I push back a little bit Tim, and you're of saying, course. well, the problem is we need to study it, you know, it should change the schedule and then we could do better. I, I think that we have enough information today to tell you about the harms, I, especially as an emergency physician. I'm seeing I'm sure you see it, too. I'm sure you can educate about. First of all, we have to understand that marijuana is a plant with hundreds of components in it, including carcinogens um, that have drug interactions with 400, 500 different medications. So it's hard. It's OK to say, OK, you know, there's maybe components and chemicals in the plant that may be therapeutic. I buy that and it can go through the FDA process and I would prescribe that. But as of today, I think we have enough data, enough research, enough experience if you're using cannabis and you're on a blood thinner, you have a drug interaction. And I've seen increasing cases of GI bleeds from that. And that if you have a mental health disorder um, using cannabis, and especially with repeated visits to the emergency department for psychosis and behavioral health admissions for psychosis and suicidality, that that's a danger for you. Um, if you're coming repeatedly for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, scrometing, that's that's a problem. I think we have enough information now to um, to alert on on the harms and education. We and, and we shouldn't say, oh well, we just need to study it more and let more people get sick. Well, I I, I appreciate your opinion. I think um, you know, as as a physician, I'm worried anytime somebody tells me that they're smoking anything, right? Smoking things is, is simply not good for the lungs. Uh, likewise, right. as a pediatrician, 
I know full well uh, that most children, when it when you talk about uh, drug issues, most children actually struggle with cannabis use disorder. Cannabis has ruined or derailed the lives of many adolescents. And so I don't recommend it to anybody. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I would hope that, that, that folks in addiction can also be um, the ones raising the education on, on the harms in health, especially addiction medicine physicians should be uh, helping lead education on the vast arrays in harms in, in health so people can make an informed decision. And you're right. I can see this in my practice. Um, and anybody who I, um, you know, save with naloxone from a fentanyl or opioid uh, overdose, I'll ask them about their history um, into drugs. And I haven't met anybody who didn't start marijuana at a very young age. They'll even tell me 12 years old, 11 years old. But Thank you for that for that that discussion. We could we talk more about that in of in course. the future. Do you have any advice for Dr. Spencer Darling who asked this wonderful question? Uh, absolutely. So uh, there is never going to be enough addiction medicine physicians to treat all of the addiction pathology, uh, not just in America but around the globe. So any physician, any healthcare provider, nurse, social worker, teacher coach, clergy, uh, anybody that comes up against the disease of addiction, uh, I think and hope should feel comfortable having an open and honest uh, sort of conversation uh, with whoever they're talking to about this. Uh, one of the silver linings, if you will, of the opioid crisis is that I think we're all now a little bit more comfortable talking about addiction as a medical disease. Uh, there's still a lot of stigma in our field. There's there's too much stigma, but I'm hopeful that physicians now conceive of it as a disease. And whether somebody's interacting uh, with a patient in the emergency department, in a gastroenterology office, or for that matter, in an addiction treatment center, I'm hopeful that all physicians will feel comfortable talking to their patients about addiction issues, screening them for addiction issues, and then referring them uh, for subspecialty care should they need it. And um, I don't know if I have advice to Dr. Spencer Darling, but I do have an immense amount of thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lara, you for your question. And thank you for saving me during a very particularly brutal shift. Um, I could not have survived it without your assistance. And hopefully you learned something in the chaos of it all. Um, I wish you the great success in your future career. Um, people may not know that new graduates of emergency medicine are having a hard time now because overall volumes in the emergency department are down. So hiring is down. Um, but um, uh, Dr. Darling, you'll get a wonderful letter of recommendation uh, for me um, for all your help. And, um, and so, Dr. Brenner, I really want to thank you so much for educating me, you know, in addiction medicine, your teaching uh, to your students and, and around the country, your academic work, your political work, and probably most important, the clinical bedside work for your patients. Well, Dr. Lev, I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on your podcast. Uh, also really appreciate your leadership at uh, ONDCP and all the important work that you do. So uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. 
This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.